Welcome to The District, a podcast by the spectator world about politics and culture. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by Amber Athey. And uh, today in the news, we're going to be talking about what should be the headline story, isn't the headline story, and also should have been the headline story about two and a half, excuse me, about a year and a half ago. And that is the, the trials and travails of Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, you may remember back around the 2020 election, news broke that Hunter Biden's laptop had turned up with a trove of files on it that weren't supposed to be there at a repair shop somewhere in Delaware. And it was this whole strange caper. And, and you know, there's, there's so many different elements to this story. He was a lobbyist for Burisma, which is a Ukrainian company. There's those infamous pictures of him in the tub, the drug use. It, it's this bizarre, swirling saga, but it's related directly to uh, Joe Biden uh, because it, it, it ties in. This is his son. The problem is when this story broke, it was denounced as Russian information by intelligence officials, by big tech, which went ahead and censored the story. You know, the New York Post was doing reporting on it. They didn't allow it through. They, they tried to scrub it from Twitter. It was this whole mess. And then lo and behold, I'm reading the New York Times yesterday, and I had to scroll down about 15 stories on the front page to find it. But the New York Times confirms that the laptop story is, in fact, real confirms that Hunter Biden is in fact under investigation. They screwed with the headline, right? The headline was Hunter Biden did in fact pay his tax bill, but the federal investigation continues. So there's nothing in there to acknowledge that conservatives were right. There's nothing in there about the censorship that that took place a year and a half ago. But nevertheless, the report did, I suspect begrudgingly, confirm that all of this was real. And so we're left with a story about presidential power. We're left with a very flagrant uh, abuse, uh, a very flagrant story of media abuse. And also just, you know, Amber, help me break this down a little bit because it's such a weird, it's the kind of thing that might happen in a season of, of 24, one of these more absurd, you know, adventure shows on TV, thriller shows on TV. What else is going on with Hunter here, first of all? Yeah, it's really bizarre, the things that were found on the laptop. And I know people like to focus a lot on you know, these really scandalous photos of him engaging in drug use and sleeping with prostitutes and taking all of these weird videos of himself while he's apparently high on crack cocaine. But what really caught people's eye in this laptop, aside from the fact that Hunter is a well-known degenerate, is that there were these emails that did suggest that Joe Biden could be involved to some extent in Hunter's foreign business dealings, which would obviously be a huge deal for someone who was running for president. And that's why this story really mattered. There were emails, for example, that suggested that Hunter was looking to save, put aside some of the money from his um, deal with a Chinese business firm for his father, who he affectionately referred to as the big man or the big guy. And then there were other emails that suggested that Joe Biden had actually met with members of Burisma, which is that Ukrainian energy company that Hunter was on the board of and was receiving lucrative uh, cash for, even though he had no experience in that industry. So those were really the key components that I think warranted further investigation and hinted at this deeper Biden family corruption, which is not just limited to Hunter, but also Joe Biden's brothers as well, who have tried to tried to trade in on Joe Biden's fame and political power to make money. Um, so that was 
why I think censoring that story so close to the election, I mean, I think it was maybe a week or two before, was really so horrendous because if people were aware of the potential for this type of foreign corruption, which is exactly what Trump was accused of in 2016, uh, that could have very well changed a lot of people's votes. And I believe there was a poll that was taken shortly after the election asking people if they knew about these emails, if that would have affected their vote or changed the way that they view Joe Biden. And a lot of them said yes. Um, so it's just this really crazy story about media bias and election interference, corruption. I mean, it really runs the gamut of everything that is portrayed in these really dramatic television shows about D.C. and politicians, but we never really expect to happen in real life. And I think uh, before we get deeper into this, deeper into the media bias angle, I think the complexity was part of what allowed them to ignore it. And you saw something similar with the lab leak theory, for example. It is such a complex story. It involves, you know, scientists who are scrapping with each other, not necessarily agreeing with each other. Big SAT words like zoonosis that it, it allows the media to just say, oh, well, this is just all nonsense and nutty over here and, and kind of give it the blind eye, right? Not, not pay attention to it. Uh, and, you know, as you just showed, fleshing out that the script that I had let in with, which was in itself completely inadequate, this is a very complicated story uh, involving a lot of players and involving, you know, multiple appearances of wrongdoing by Hunter Biden from the, the sort of you know, trivial and nasty that the drug use and the bathroom pictures to the much more serious, the involvement with Burisma, the laptop. And, you know, that can be difficult to process all at once. Whereas the, the narrative that emerged, which is that it's just Russian disinformation intended to defeat Joe Biden, that's easily digestible. That gets around Twitter. But, you know, flashing back to, to 2020 for a minute, regardless of how complex it was, and I, again, you know, I, I understand how that can be used to suppress it. I was amazed at how many journalists came out and cheered the censoring of the New York Post, cheered the suppression of this information. And, you know, they tried to pass it off as being from the Russians or whatever the case might be. But this was just a media that believed that democracy itself was on the line in 2020, right? That was what this was really about. They viewed, they viewed this as an existential challenge to the United States. And so if you have to break a couple eggs to make an omelet, then so be it. That, that seemed like the mentality there. It was. And, you know, objectivity and journalism didn't really become an idea in the United States until the early... 20th century, like the late 1800s, early 1900s. But just recently, I think the veil on on that idea behind journalism has really been lifted. And, and we're learning that the media was never really objective. They just were kind of good at hiding their bias. And now they're being more open about it. And there's been this shift in really just the ideas behind journalistic ethics and the way the media operates from we're going to try to be fair and present both sides of the story to there is only one side of the story. There's only one truth. It's what we believe. And we owe it to the American public to tell them that truth because they're too stupid to figure it out themselves. And and they have a, a like you said, they believe that they're saving democracy by advancing their view of the world and by getting certain people elected or by presenting certain narratives. Um, they've really shifted from a presenting the facts type of view of journalism to journalism is actually a form of public activism. 
And that's becoming more and more apparent with how much journalists are willing to celebrate these types of things. I mean, another recent example of this, which I think is a direct parallel to the way the New York Post was censored, is that Project Veritas was able to obtain version of um, Ash, I believe it's Ashley Biden's diary, which had some really concerning passages about her showering with her father and just some really weird stuff. The diary was, I believe, confirmed to be real. And as much as I sometimes question Project Veritas's tactics, this is a form of journalism, obtaining this this thing about a, a public official that could be really damaging. And they were they had their offices raided by the federal government. They've been sued. They, The federal government, the FBI, leaked the raids and other information about the investigation to the media. And so there's really this concerted effort between the government, you know, Democratic officials, the media, big tech institutions, all working together to suppress certain narratives about people in power. And that should be concerning for everyone because that type of monopolistic control of information is the real threat to democracy. Yeah, no, I agree. And it, it's, I don't want to be the kind of conservative who quotes Rush Limbaugh all the time. May he rest no, you should. Peace, he's great. But, <laughs> uh, he is great. He, I mean, he's very often great and, and, you know, sharper than he ever got credit for. And I, my favorite knowledgeism by him was always drive by media, the drive by media, as he used to call it. I thought that was so perfect and got at something so essential and it's that it, it isn't about getting at the truth anymore. It's about this small clique of like-minded people uh, who drive by and open up with the machine guns and then drive away. And, you know, it, it takes oftentimes weeks to, to pick through the gun smoke and figure out what really happened there. Right. But by then, the narrative has already moved on. They've driven by. There's nothing left to, to, to look at. And that's exactly what happened here. Right. It was Russian propaganda and everybody got mad and then they moved on. And only now are we learning, wait a minute, actually, that wasn't entirely true. We knew it back then, too. But only now are we getting the kind of imprimatur from The New York Times, which finally bothered to do real journalism on this. And it's made me appreciate right wing media more. Right. I mean, I think we all kind of we, we can all wince when we watch Fox News on occasion. It, it, it all you, know, you, you wonder if sometimes they go too far or it's become too cheesy or too campy. But w- one thing that I learned that I think that's very important during the whole Canada crisis with the truckers a month ago is you can watch the CBC and it just bears no relation to reality. I mean, you really, the truth is only getting out because of Twitter, because of people who are there on the ground, who are documenting how peaceful the protests were in Ottawa, how bad the police brutality did ultimately get. Then you turn on CBC and it's like getting a completely parallel universe and CBC is state-owned media. And they have a much more of a monopoly up there than anything in the United States has here. So it just makes you grateful for this alternative information track that we can use to push out the truth, because otherwise the truth may never emerge. But I want to even get off the media for a second here, because everything that we're saying right here is nothing new. What is relatively novel is big tech getting in on the act and becoming gatekeepers, becoming even censors for information. Uh, and, and they did suppress the, the the story about the laptop. They did buy into it being Russian information. We'll give Twitter some credit. They apologized actually back into 2020 before the before the election, they said that it was a mistake, uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the damage was done. And like you were saying, Amber, it sure looks a lot like a complex, like an alliance between 
the government, the big tech companies, and the media. Yeah, and I mean, you hear the Biden administration even saying in the past couple of months that they have an interest in fighting disinformation and misinformation. I don't even know which word they're using anymore. It's like they seem to change every week depending on whatever's convenient. But they want to work with the tech companies to suppress and censor things that they view as disinformation and misinformation. And the problem is, obviously, is they don't have an objective view of what misinformation is. Um, they their, their form of misinformation is any right-wing narrative that's inconvenient to them. So for the left, like misinformation is saying that Leah Thomas is a man, right? Misinformation is saying that the Hunter laptop was real and that the things on it were verified, which they were, in fact, by uh, a forensic auditor for the Daily Caller pretty shortly after the New York Post published that story. Um, so their claims to be fighting misinformation are obviously in bad faith, but the tech companies are going right along for the ride because guess what? They want to be able to manipulate the type of regulation that's placed on them. So if they're able to create this favorable relationship with the Biden administration, and then you have Elizabeth Warren coming in calling for breaking up Facebook and the Biden administration can say, well, you know, they worked with us on misinformation. So we're going to cut them a little bit of slack and maybe we'll do a lighter form of regulation like the kind that's been proposed in the Facebook and Twitter ads that they've been running all over the TV for the past six months to try to suggest that they're on board with all of this. Then you're going to end up with something um, that is still allowing these companies to abuse their power and, and have these monopolies and really just shape the culture in a way that I think is really damaging for the American public. Um, so those two entities working together, I think, is like the greatest argument ever against this reflexive, conservative, uh, free market approach to big tech, because it's it's really not just private companies anymore. These people are working hand in hand with the government, and they own so much market power on the Internet that this is a, a really dangerous phenomenon. Yeah, it's almost like folk libertarianism versus D.C. Liber- libertarianism. It's almost your average conservative, I think, maybe your average American who thinks that you ought to have a right to free speech and to get out alternative information uh, versus, you know, more Cato Institute style libertarianism, which says, no, actually, these companies can do whatever the hell they want because they're in the private sector. It'd be nice if we could reconcile the two. It's certainly difficult to in this case, but it also just raises a, a fundamental question when we're talking about violations of freedom of speech. And that is that if you are going to curtail it, if you are going to censor certain information on Twitter or just in the public sphere generally, who gets to decide? Who gets to make that call? The tech companies, I'm not even sure, to to give them a tiny amount of credit, I'm not sure they're totally comfortable in that role either. And until the 2016 election, Mark Zuckerberg, to his credit, had very much resisted this. I think at least theoretically, they're free speech absolutists and they want to want to stick to that. I think we could do a lot worse than the tech companies so far as censors go. But nonetheless, they found themselves thrust, you know, self-anointed anyway, into this role where they think that they have to censor information. They think that the truth and democracy are under threat. And so therefore, they have to be the ones they get to decide. But the problem is, what if they don't know what the hell they're talking about? What if they're listening to people who also don't know what the hell they're talking about or who have very slanted political biases, as did the left when it was talking about the Hunter laptop case? 
Hunter Biden laptop case. Again, I, I'm not convinced that Twitter was the real evil presence there. I think they listened to people who were uh, who were you know biased themselves, who had an interest in trying to suppress this information, and and they realized it and they they later apologized. But again, you know who gets to decide? Clearly, Twitter doesn't do a very good job of this. Uh, clearly, Facebook doesn't do a very good job of this. Clearly, the government doesn't because it's it's interested in defending one party. Uh, what I, I guess I don't really see a way forward except that free speech has to be absolute in, in the case of political speech. I, I don't think that we can start censoring. And I think if we do, it's going to end badly. And this is a very textbook case of that and should be a very ominous case, too. It should. And let's be honest, it's very rare that the top executives at these social media companies are the ones deciding to censor these various things. Really what's happening is that a lot of the bias, one, is inherent in the algorithms that they're writing because they do have these bots that go around and censor content based on these algorithms to uh, try to abide by their policies. But the algorithms are written by people who are biased. And so the bias is inherent in the algorithms. And then you have a bunch of these little like fresh out of college drones who have just been indoctrinated with liberal dogma for four to eight years and are sitting at the switch just waiting to be able to hit delete or ban or suspend on a conservative's Twitter account. So it's like not even a top down thing. It's that they have all these minions um, in there who are primarily liberal as evidenced by a lot of the internal revolts that have taken place over the past few years, as well as those uh, sort of infamous videos of people melting down over the election of Trump at the big tech companies. Those are the people who are making these everyday decisions. It's this faceless sort of, we would describe them as a bureaucrat if they were in the government, but they're in a private company. So I guess they're like, they're office minions. You know, they work in a cubicle, except they have, you know, a ping pong table and like free LaCroix every day. And they sit here and they get to decide whether or not someone's account gets suspended. And that's why so often when a conservative gets suspended for something completely anodyne, the PR people come back and they say, oh, it was a mistake. We're going to reinstate their account. It wasn't a mistake. It was that, you know, the liberal at the switch just went a little bit too far that time. And we should be clear that it's generational, too, right? Because the boomers hate this kind of censorship. Uh, Gen Z, according to polls anyway, hates cancel culture and this kind of censorship. It's this very narrow stratum of millennials, you know, my generation, and I, I apologize on, on behalf of them because they're terrible, but who are just totally corrupted by woke politics, identity politics, and think that information needs to be censored on its behalf. And these people are now coming of age at companies like Facebook and Disney, and that's why you're seeing the censorship. It's just this weird group of people and we need to like lock them in a tower somewhere <laughs> and just like get them out of the workforce. No, you're dead on, Matt. I mean, it's the woke millennials. It's so the same people who are censoring conservatives on Twitter are they're like analogous to the people at the New York Times who freaked out over the Tom Cotton op-ed. It is that same subset of people who went to elite colleges and, you know, probably graduated near the top of their class and had all these really impressive internships. So people thought, oh, we'll hire them. They're so impressive, but they're steeped in woke politics. And so they get any sense of power and they use these campus style tactics of guilt tripping and shaming and protesting and just being as annoying as possible until people give in to what they want. 
Yeah, that's what happens when the boomer. Maybe it's the boomers that raise this generation. I mean, I don't know, but it's. I, I have to say, millennials get a bad rap sometimes because we went through nine eleven. A lot of us went to fight in the the doomed wars in the Middle East. We, uh, you know, we we graduated right into the the heart of the recession. I graduated in two thousand nine. There just weren't jobs. I mean, it was very very difficult. You know, we had to when we were growing up, we had to find our way through the hidden temple on Nickelodeon. It was almost impossible. <laughs> get up the aggro crag. I mean, all this like really difficult, crazy shit that we had to do. How did we turn into such spoiled brats? I'm really (laughs) curious about it. Like, how did we get to the point where we were like, yeah, you know what? That guy doesn't agree with me. I'm going to shut him up. I'm going to duct tape his mouth shut. There's a book waiting to be written about millennial attitudes to censorship that. Wow. Who might be writing that book? Yeah, I think there's, did I do a nice dovetail, like a nice transition? That was nice. Yeah. (laughs) Available at fine bookstores everywhere. <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's me. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, before we adjourn here, do you want to tell us a little bit about the book since we've accidentally backed into your expertise here? Of course. So I, I believe it's going to be coming out in the next year or so, but it's about exactly this phenomenon about how the woke millennials took campus politics to the real world. And, you know, we, we said repeatedly when the snowflakes get to their real jobs, just wait and see. They're not going to be able to get away with this nonsense. And instead, the adults were totally unprepared and had no idea how to shut these kids down. And they ended up completely taking over institutions like big tech, the media, politics, et cetera. Check it out when it comes out. And uh, yeah. And if Hunter Biden is, you know, not in prison, maybe he will, too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.